you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Habakkuk, still in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17, picking up where we left off last week in Habakkuk chapter 1, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 17. <clears throat> Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Thursday afternoon in Blue Jacket, Oklahoma, there was a car accident. It involved three cars, a semi, a Ford F-350, and a Nissan Versa. The driver of the Versa was killed in the crash. And the only reason I know about this accident, the only reason I'm aware of it, is because of the identity of the woman who was killed. Her name was Kaylee Duggar. She was a student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kansas City, the same school where Destiny and I attended until we came here in 2021, and the same school that I used to work for. And while I didn't know Kaylee, I very likely read her application, read her testimony, and admitted her into school. She was going to graduate in May and hoped to go overseas as a missionary shortly after. And while I read the article online, the press release about her death, about this accident, I was struck by this sentence toward the end. Kaylee's family are believers and, while grieving, are praying God would bring something good out of this tragedy. These people who just lost their daughter at a mere 30 years old, my age, who from all accounts was a great example of what the Christian life should look like. This woman who, as far as we know, didn't do anything wrong in the crash. Who we would think would have had many years of gospel service ahead of her. These parents' response, at least publicly, is to grieve, but also to pray that God would bring something good out of this tragedy. And what an incredible response that is to things that you don't understand. To things that you don't know why God would have allowed this to happen. In a lot of ways, I think that's the model of faithfulness for how Christians should respond to tragedy and evil. But I don't think that that's the only faithful response. I think if they were to question, if they were to be confused... And distraught at this happening, as I'm sure they likely are, then I think they can still be faithful and also respond that way. Habakkuk today, I think, remains faithful even as he asks what I believe are valid questions in response to God's plan to bring the Babylonians against Judah. To bring devastation and destruction against his own people. 
So in today's text, we're going to look at those questions that Habakkuk is asking. We'll see four valid questions that can be asked by faithful people. And the first valid question asked by faithful people from our text today is this. What about your promises? I think a faithful person can ask God that question. God, what about the promises that you've made to your people? That's what Habakkuk ultimately is asking here in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. He begins his complaint, his response to God's response, by referring to God's eternality. Are you not from everlasting? God has always existed and as the creator actually created even time itself. Therefore, he exists outside of time. And when he made time, he knew everything that was going to occur within time. So Habakkuk takes that piece that he knows about God, that he is eternal, that he has always existed, that he is not bound within time. That thing that he believes to be true to arrive at this question. Wait, so, so God, you're telling me that you've known everything that would happen this whole time. You knew that we would arrive at this spot. That eventually you would judge your people with the Babylonians. So if you knew that that was what was going to happen, and you did, then why did you make the promises to us that you made? And I know Habakkuk is connecting what's about to happen to the promises that God has made because of how he addresses God in the beginning of his first question. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, all capitals probably in your Bible, my God, my Holy One? The first name that Habakkuk calls God in this complaint is Yahweh, the highest and most revered name for God in the Old Testament. Lord in all capitals in our English Bibles. And most often when that name is used, it's not just referring to God, though it is. It's also supposed to bring to mind that this God has made a covenant with his people. That he is the covenant God, the promise-making and promise-keeping God. So Habakkuk starts his second complaint emphasizing that God is that God, the promise-making and promise-keeping God. He told Adam and Eve in the garden that their offspring would crush the serpent. He told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation, that he would fill the earth and bless him. He told David that David's descendants would not depart from the throne forever. And these weren't just flippant promises as if God's the child who wants to go play rather than do their chores. Yes, I'll do it later. These were covenants. Sealed treaties between God and man that God absolutely would and has upheld. So where do the Babylonians fit with Israel being a great nation? Where do they fit and help the good of God's chosen one destroying the evil of the serpent? If they're on the throne in Israel, how is David's descendant supposed to rule exactly? Habakkuk is saying here, God, I know you're going to judge us. And I can even recognize that we deserve it. But you promised us things that we haven't yet seen. So how does this work? You knew everything the whole time and you made us these promises anyway. So what about those promises, God? We might sound like Habakkuk when we wonder, I thought all these things were supposed to be working together for my good. Isn't that what you said? 
that all things work together for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. Do I not count? Was there a footnote there except for me? Didn't you say that? How is me losing my job going to work for my good? How is cancer going to work for my good? You made these promises. You said you'd never leave me or forsake me. So where are you right now, God? I think faithful people can ask that question of God and remain faithful people. And if we're paying attention, I think Habakkuk actually shows us what that looks like. You'll notice throughout each of these questions that Habakkuk, though he faithfully questions God, never allows the questions to alter his faith in God. It never actually gets to the point where he is reconciling his understanding and saying, God actually is not these things I believed him to be. He's asking hard questions. He's getting to the, the, to the thrust of the matter. But even as he does so, he is remaining faithful and acknowledging God to be who he has always believed God to be. He continues to believe what he's always believed about God, even in the midst of his valid questions. And he even sometimes is able to give himself some answers along the way. Are you not forever lasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Now, I think it's important that you know here that we don't actually know the specifics of what Habakkuk said there. We don't know how to translate it perfectly, though we do know what he meant. It's possible from the Hebrew that he was actually asking a question here, which your Bibles may have. Shall we not die? Asking, are you really going to finish us off? But regardless of whether Habakkuk is asking that question or answering his own previous question... He does allude to a clear answer to everything he's asking. This may look bleak, but this is not the end for God's people. This isn't how we die off. The Babylonians, as fearsome and gruesome as they are, they are not the final word. Because he remembers, he knows that the everlasting God has made these promises to us. So what this is, is a judgment you have ordained them as a judgment, O Lord. So he's saying, okay, I know it's something we deserve. It's the consequences of our sins and our failure to uphold our side of the treaty, our side of God's covenant. And it's a judgment that God has ordained. He's still being just, good, and sovereign, even as he sends the Chaldeans against the nation of Judah. And though he judges us, this judgment is ultimately for Reproof. It's designed to express God's distaste with the evil actions of his sinful people. The end of verse 12. And you, O rock, have established them for reproof. And with every reproof that comes from God comes also this call. Repent. Turn from your evil and turn toward his good. That's how Christ explains the reproof of God in Revelation chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. He's writing a letter to his church and saying reproof is coming, but this is why reproof comes. He says this, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. And he with me. So without giving away the ending here, without jumping to the end, 
Let me just say that God has eternal goals and an eternal plan for loving fellowship with you, his chosen people. So whatever reproof or discipline or trials or persecution or heartache that you receive, whatever you get, that's out of love. Whatever circumstances, pain, loss, heartache that you go through, ultimately, those circumstances only serve those ends. of Loving fellowship between God and man forever. He keeps his promises. And the cross is the proof that he keeps his promises. All the good that we are supposed to receive, we have received through Christ and his cross. All the promises he has made to us are yes and amen in Jesus. So even as we question, validly, faithfully, but questioning still, we can't forget that we've received an answer far better than we could imagine or deserve in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we get to what's the answer to our valid questions, eventually we're going to come to a place where the cross is that answer. Where he has shown us everything we need to remain faithful in the midst of our questions. But for Habakkuk today, he's asking, what about your promises? By him acknowledging the reproof of God, by continuing to call God by his faithful name, and trusting that this isn't the end for the Israelites, I think he's remaining faithful, even as he asks that valid question, what about your promises? But he asks another question immediately after this as well. How can you still be good? That's the second valid question that I think can still be asked by faithful people. He's able to ask that question. How can you still be good? In verse 13 and 14. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He immediately acknowledges the holiness of God. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil. Not only is God from everlasting, but he is also holy and perfect. He is good in every respect. He is of purer eyes than to see evil. He can't even look at wrong. His holiness is so extreme, so pure, that it is impossible for God to abide with evil. He and evil cannot occupy the same space. And again, here we see Habakkuk is returning to what he already believed and still believes about God in order to offer his complaint. These aren't silly problems. These aren't light questions. They're deep longings and hard subjects. Habakkuk is trying to recognize what he knows about God with what God is doing by sending them the Babylonians. He's trying to recognize how these things can fit together. He's trying to reconcile them in his own mind. I know God is these things, and yet he has said he is doing these things. So how can these things be true at the same time? That's Habakkuk's problem. He knows God is holy and can't even look at evil. But if that's true, why is God doing this? Verse 13b. Why do you idly look at traitors? 
and remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. If you can't even look at evil, God, then why are you just standing around for what's about to happen? You're holy, I know. Yet you're somehow using the wicked, the less holy, to judge the less wicked, the more holy. Habakkuk saying, we Israelites may be bad, but we're not the Babylonians, are we? How are you, God, not implicated in this? How can you still be good and also do this? And what makes Habakkuk's question so much harder to answer for himself and for us is that he removes the option to say that God actually isn't the one doing this. Verse 14 You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He's recalling back to God's status as the creator, that he is the creator God. He made time, space, matter, mankind, and everything that mankind does. He is sovereign over all things. And has even in this instance explicitly said that he is the one sending the Babylonians against Judah. He is in charge. And I know it would be way easier in some ways. Way more convenient in dealing with these questions in particular. If we could just say, yeah, God is sovereign over all things. Except for that. All the things he does that I like. All the things he does that I agree with. Those are the things he's sovereign over. All the things that he uh, does that I really have a problem with, that I wouldn't do it the same way. The things that seem off to me, those must be the things that he actually doesn't have control over. Wouldn't it be an immediately more comforting answer? A seemingly cleaner answer if God were just Santa Claus without the coal. If he just did the good stuff we wanted him to do and not doing any of the things that we think he shouldn't do because we think that would be bad for us. Habakkuk removes that option. He's saying, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like beings beneath you in substance, form, and complexity. Like beings who cannot comprehend your plans and your purposes. And as he does so, he's calling back to creation itself. Genesis 1 verse 26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Habakkuk's acknowledging, okay, you made man have dominion over the fish, and yet you are making man as if they were the fish. So your dominion is of a higher and greater order even than our dominion over the fish. That God is in charge of everything that we see here. And yet in this instance, Habakkuk is saying, I know that you are in charge, but it really feels like somebody else is calling the shots right now. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. God is supposed to have dominion over mankind, and yet right now, it really looks like men are like fish. Swimming around wherever they want to go, doing whatever they want to do with no one to answer to. It looks like no one is keeping them in line. No one's making them do what they're supposed to do. I mean, have you ever seen a school of fish? They're all kind of together, but they're all actually just doing whatever. 
There's no clear point A to point B. It just looks like chaos. They're just swimming around from one place to another, winding along their way with no ruler in charge. And for Habakkuk, the answer God has given really feels like that same chaos. He knows God is good. He knows God is in charge. But it really seems like a sovereign good God and the Babylonians conquering Judah can't both be true at the same time. So Habakkuk is left with this question, how can you still be good? How can your goodness in this action coexist? I mean, God, what about the death and devastation that comes with the Babylonians as they come to Judah? The raping and pillaging? God, if you're in charge, how could the slave trade happen? If you're in charge, why did those bullets hit their mark? If you're in charge, why did that car accident happen? If you're holy and in charge, how did you let that happen? And if you did let that happen, how can you still be good? That's a valid question that Habakkuk asks. But I think he's able to ask that question and somehow still remain faithful. And I know that because he's once again starting from an assumption of God's goodness, of God's sovereignty. Habakkuk hasn't abandoned the faith because he still knows that God is pure and holy. That he is still the sovereign creator who has a stake in righteousness. As opposed to someone who no longer believes. Someone who has no faith. Because they have come to the conclusion that God is not holy or not good. Simply because of the evil that they see around them. Habakkuk isn't that person. He isn't claiming God is not holy or that God is not in charge. He's trying to understand how they fit together. I think he gives us an example of faith seeking understanding. That he continues to believe, continues to trust that these things are true, even as he doesn't know how they are all true. Even as he can't comprehend how they're all true. Faith-seeking understanding allows hard, even pointed questions to be asked of the good and sovereign God. Faithful people can ask that valid question. How can you still be good when we encounter evil? But I think we can also ask God this. What do you get out of this? I think that's still a valid question for faithful people to ask. Because that's where Habakkuk is going in these next verses. Verse 15. He brings all of them up with a hook, he being the Babylonians. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Habakkuk saying, the wicked seem pretty happy with this arrangement, in my eyes. The evil Babylonians are the he at the beginning of verse 15. And he brings the people who are like fish, in this analogy, up with the hook. He, the Babylonians, drags them out with his net. He even gathers them with his dragnet. Habakkuk's talking about increasing levels of effectiveness For the evil one who is gathering up men like fish. I'm no fisherman, but I'm pretty sure a hook catches one fish at a time. 
A net gathers more as it's thrown and is gathered back in. But a dragnet goes from boat to boat, from surface to bottom. And it's designed to try to catch all the fish in the water. So the guy who runs the dragnet is pretty happy with these final results. Because he's catching more than he ever thought he could. He's catching a whole lot of fish without having to do a whole lot of work. So he rejoices and is glad. Things have never been better for the wicked Babylonians in this arrangement. They've won their battles, their wars before by their own strength and might. Wicked nation fighting wicked nation. But now they're going to battle with the power of God working through them for a specific purpose of judging the Israelites. And there is no victory that is easier than that. And these victories won't be easy to anyone else. They won't be bloodless as they win. There's no honor or gentleman's warfare here. The references to fish hooks and nets, while they are an analogy for man and fish, we think they may also have been literal in the case of the Babylonians. We think they may have literally strung together their war prisoners, their captives with hooks, going through their bottom lip and strung together from hook to hook along a string, along a chain. They may have literally drugged people behind their chariots so that their chariots didn't have to slow down to the pace of their captives. The wicked would be loving this plan of God in Habakkuk's eyes. And Habakkuk is trying to figure out how this works, why this all fits together. Because the wicked are prospering instead of the good. And you would think God would not be in favor of that. The prosperous wicked won't then turn around and praise the God who brought all this about. That's what Habakkuk is saying in verse 16. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. He's saying you're bringing all of this prosperity, all of this victory to this wicked people. And they don't even know that you're the one who's doing it. They're not praising God for giving them the victory. They're praising the tools they used to bring about this prosperity. They believe that things are going well for them because in their own power and might, the tools they used have worked well. It's the wide receiver thinking the ball which brought the touchdown rather than the quarterback who threw it. They're the perfect example of what Romans tells us is part of the human condition. Something that all men do simply because we're sinners. Romans 1 verses 24 and 25 says this. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. To the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. Romans says that God judged people. He gave them over into their sin because they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. Just as the Babylonians here are worshiping the net rather than the one who sent the fish. And Habakkuk is trying to understand, he's trying to point out to God, even as he knows God knows, why would God want this outcome? What does God possibly get out of this? The wicked people are prospering and happy. What does God get out of that? 
The wicked people respond to their prosperity not by turning to God and worshiping him for bringing that prosperity to them, but rather by continuing in the idolatrous sin that he hates. They worship the net. They worship their own power, their own might, and the tools of their warfare. So what does God get out of that? That's Habakkuk's natural, valid, but I think still faithful question. But I think we know Habakkuk is still being faithful as he asks because of the underlying assumptions behind the question. If you know God shouldn't like it when wicked people prosper, then you're acknowledging that God is not wicked. A wicked God should love it when evil wins. But a good God, you would think, would naturally have a problem with this arrangement. And that's driving Habakkuk to ask these kind of questions. He's also assuming that God should be worshipped. If you think it's evil, if you think it's sinful idolatry to sacrifice to the net rather than the God who made the atoms which make up the net, then you're showing that you think all people everywhere should be worshipping this same God. A God who's not worthy of worship would have no reason to be upset when people who don't know him don't worship him. But the God who deserves worship from all men, everywhere, in all time. He has every reason to be upset. And that's what leads to Habakkuk's question. I think you can still be faithful and also ask God his motives, what he's getting out of what he's doing. And I think that brings us to the final valid question that faithful people can ask from today's text. How long? How long will it be like this? Verse 17, is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? We saw a few weeks ago in verse 2 that Habakkuk actually begins his first complaint with this same question. And this is the same place that he returns in his second complaint as he begins to wrap up his thoughts. He knows that this is going to happen. He knows that the wicked will prosper gathering up all of God's people into nets like fish in the sea, and that there will be no additional worship of God as the result. He knows that the Babylonians are going to mercilessly kill nations. And he's asking, is this going to go on forever? Saying, God, people aren't fish. They shouldn't be treated this way. You knew all things. You made these promises to us, promises that you're going to keep. So when, God, you're holy and yet you're using the wicked for your purposes. For how long, Yahweh? You're in charge. But an impartial impartial third party might not be able to notice that you're in charge. So what's the timeline here? The wicked are happy and they're furthering their idolatry. They're worshiping you less than the hypocritical Israelites do. So when is this going to come to an end, God? Habakkuk asked this question as the culmination of all the others. It has the cadence of a man who's at the end of his rope. He thought things were bad, thought things were going poorly. So he cried out for help. And the answer he received was more judgment. And it wasn't just judgment. It was judgment that feels inherently unjust to him. It sounds, it feels 
like God is making the problems worse and not better. So he has to ask, how long will this go on? How long will it be this way, God? But I want you to notice once again the underlying assumption that Habakkuk is making here. Habakkuk is believing, he is hoping, he's trusting in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his confusion, in the midst of his sorrow, that the coming cruelty, though it will come, has an expiration date. The question he actually asks is a leading question with an implied answer. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? No. Certainly not. He, the Babylonians, won't win forever. As powerful as they are, as decisively as they win, as bad as things get for the nation of Judah, they won't be like that forever. Habakkuk is asking God real questions. He's asking God hard questions. But even as he asks those questions, I think he's still showing himself to be faithful because he's asking every question and the hope that there's something on the other side of his questions. There are promises on the other side of God's judgment. There's goodness coming on the other side of the coming evil. There's worship on the other side of the current idolatry. So the answer to how long, which we don't immediately receive in this text, is not forever. God hears Habakkuk. He will act sovereignly against evil to judge his people, yes, but also to judge the wicked Chaldeans, which we'll get to where we begin in chapter 2. He has a plan of salvation for Habakkuk and his people, and that plan is actually accomplished through this coming calamity, not just in spite of it, not just around it. Not as if this is a detour that God didn't plan and wasn't prepared for, and that's to improvise along the way. We've talked today about questions that we are allowed to ask. Even some of these questions, it may feel like we're not supposed to ask. Like we're not supposed to pray this way. We're not supposed to say these things out loud. Questions that we might think stronger Christians just simply wouldn't have. That the reason we have to ask how long, the reason we have to ask how can you still be good, that the reason we have to ask these kind of questions is because we simply just aren't mature enough. And that someday we'll get beyond questions like this. But I don't think that's true. I hope you've seen that asking the question actually can be an act of faith. Asking the question can actually show that you believe there's an answer to that question. It can show that you still trust the one that you're asking. It can show that you're still believing. That you're still hoping. Even though someone else, maybe even yourself sometimes, might think that you have no reason to still be believing. To still be hoping. To still be trusting. And the God that we have. And I think it's important that we acknowledge that some of these questions are okay to ask. Because, well, for one, I think we're going to ask them anyway. I think if we're all being honest, there has been a moment in everyone in this room's life where they have had that thought. They've had that question. 
They may have prayed that prayer. So we have to acknowledge that I think it's okay when those questions come. We can't help ourselves. But I think it's okay to acknowledge that it's okay to ask these questions even more so because it shows that God isn't afraid of those questions. He's not flummoxed by the answers. He knows the questions. He has the answers. A God that can be questioned. A God that isn't afraid of anything you're going to say to him. He's actually bigger, better, stronger, more trustworthy than the God that you can't question. The God you can't ask. But I think what matters for us, which we're going to see through the rest of Habakkuk, isn't so much the questions we ask. It's how we respond to the answers that we're given. Maybe you've noticed by now that I have spent this whole sermon saying, you're okay to ask these questions. You can ask this question and this question and this question and this question. And I've given you, I think, zero answers. And I think we'll get some of those through the book of Habakkuk. But I don't think it's ever going to be as simple as we want it to be. I don't think we're ever going to know it as clearly as we wish we would. I think we're going to get some answers in the coming weeks. But I think Habakkuk is in the Bible. Not to give us the answers to every question that we have. The answers to every question that we want answered. I think Habakkuk is in the Bible to help us respond as we should. No matter the answer that we're given. Even if that's silence. Even if that's real doubt, real fear, real worry. Even if that's just landing at how long. And even coming to a place where we have to say, how long am I going to have to keep asking how long? I think Habakkuk shows us how to ultimately respond and to remain faithful. When we think about God in the midst of great evil. And I hope we've been helped toward that end today. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to read, to hear your word with your people. To be able to worship you, even in the midst of our questions. To be able to trust you even when the evidence might tell us that we shouldn't. Help for us to be people who are honest with you and with others. People who are real, authentic. People who can actually ask these kind of questions in this kind of place without the fear that we're going to be thrown out. God, as we ask these questions, we pray that you'll give us the answers that we need. The answers we should have. Even more than the answers we want. The answers we believe we should have. Help for us, even in our questioning, which will inevitably happen, 
even as we pray these kinds of prayers, have these kinds of fears, help us to remain faithful as we do so. That though we can faithfully ask these questions, help for these questions not to alter or affect our faith in a negative way, but only to strengthen it. Help us, even as we ask, how long? We love you, and we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.